Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Gravity Leadership Podcast. This is Matt Tebby, as you know by now. I'm joined by my friend, co-pastor... Unless it's the first time they're listening to the podcast. Episode like 38 or something? 30, I don't know what this one will be. But uh, If this is the first time be. you're listening, yeah. what we do People, is, yeah. yeah, this is a podcast for hand and foot models who are male. So we'll have some tips and techniques on how to get on the runway and under the, no, this is about mm-hmm. love and Jesus and leadership. Yeah, that's good. And we invite that's you to start to with episode, we invite you to start with episode one. Yeah, it's good. But that handsome, that handsome voice next to me is Ben Sternke. Hey guys, I'm here. And uh, today we are having a conversation with our new friend, Chris Green. Hey, Chris. Hey. Chris has uh, written a book that is blowing my, it's blowing my mind. Mm. And um, it aligns really closely with our training we do in our Gravity Leadership cohorts. And so I thought we could have a generative and lively conversation today Yes, about it. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Would you give us an introduction, who you are, where you are, what you are, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm just moved to Lakeland, Florida to teach at Southeastern University, which is an Assemblies of God school, although it's a, a fairly large school, 8,500 students or so. Mm. And a lot of them, of course, aren't from Pentecostal background. So it's not, it's it's largely a kind of Anglo, I mean, a evangelical charismatic commun- community, not so much an Assemblies of God community in terms of who's there. But that's the background. Got okay. it. And I'm moved here from Cleveland, Tennessee, which is the center for the Church of God, mm-hmm. and taught at their seminary for six years. And before that, I was in Oklahoma and taught at several schools there, including Oral Roberts University, which was in Tulsa, which is in Tulsa. Yeah. And I have been teaching pastor at a church in Tulsa for about seven years. Even when I lived in Cleveland and now here in Southeastern, I continue to work for them, go in occasionally to speak um, sanctuary church in Tulsa. Okay. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a thumbnail sketch. Right on, man. So church of God, t- uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is different than church of God, Anderson. Oh yes. There's yes. two church of gods. And one, I actually taught a church of God, Anderson school too, a place called mid America in Oklahoma city. <laughs> All right, man. All right. Well, so keep, I've been around. We'll keep unpacking your resume as we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. So uh, church of God, Tennessee now assemblies of God. So Pentecostal through and through. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I was raised independent Pentecostal uh, in a holiness Pentecostal group. Then I went to a Pentecostal holiness Bible college and taught there for a while before I was let go hmm. ceremoniously Uh-oh. or unceremoniously, Unce- oh, depending on say. who you ask. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was going to say, what was that ceremony like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was pretty intense, actually. <laughs> So, and then ORU, which is a charismatic school, obviously, word of faith yeah, background, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then the Church of God school, and now an Assemblies of God school. So I'm, yeah, I'm making my rounds in the Pentecostal world. Yeah. That's good. So I came to know you a bit just by our favorite social media platform, Twitter, just following your tweets yeah. and reading and uh, appreciating you. And then a friend of mine suggested that I procure your book so i messaged you and i said hey can i buy a book from you You said sure and then you signed it which is great i got a little chris green sign it's a it's a six paragraph uh homage is it like a prophetic word (laughs) that'd be be cool i should have asked for a prophetic word no but um so as i read you know people have done that by the way i've had people ask me yes for a prophetic prophetic word word in the what do you do when they ask you that do you just go for it i usually make some kind of joke and then write my name (laughs) Can I tell you, I've, I've mentioned People this. are still interpreting those jokes. They're yeah, like, what does this that's mean? That's probably true, man. What does this mean? So, Chris, you might appreciate this, or you might in the interview right now. We'll find out. But I was preaching once, and I was sort of uh, riffing on like uh, how we pick life verses as teenagers, you know, and we kind yeah, of like yeah, talk yeah. about them, right? So, I, I uh, made mention that my life verse was 1 Corinthians uh, f- uh, 14, 18, which is Paul saying, I praise God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. <laughs> and... <laughs> 99% of the congregation laughed at that, and one yeah. per, one person took me seriously and thought I could be her guru to help her speak in tongues, and I felt awful. Yeah, yeah, man. So yeah. I try to make jokes yeah. sometimes, and they don't land. Yeah. So anyway. No, no, no. That's, that's certainly my story, too. <laughs> uh, so, my favorite Bible verse, by the way, is yeah. the Ecclesiastes, don't be overly righteous or overly wicked. That's yeah. my favorite one. Yeah. Nice. So you try to st- calibrate, strike a balance. Yes, I don't want to be too righteous. I don't want to be too wicked. I'm just looking to be the, the golden mean. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, it's then in the Bible. You you, you season the righteousness in this interview, and we'll let Sternky season the wickedness. Mm. That's, that's usually that's how in it his goes. wheelhouse. Usually how it goes. So, as I read your book, man, here's what struck me: How does a guy who's Pentecostal holiness through and through writes such a small C Catholic book? Like you draw upon saints and mystics from not only the Roman tradition, but Eastern and Anglican tradition. Yeah. And it's your your spirituality and theology so, speaking of seasoned, seasoned with that stream of Christianity. So tell us a story, if you can, how how someone who, you know, your, you, your credentials in the Pentecostal holiness movement are beyond reproach because of all your experiences here. Uh, you dropped ORU, so uh, everyone knows you're legit. So like, how, does, how does that stream come into your, to influence you the way it does? So there are several ways to answer that. I think one one way of answer it is, in terms of the people that I've read who've influenced me the most are people like Rowan Williams hmm. and Robert Jensen, Lutheran ecumenical theologian. So Sarah Coakley. The, these people are are steeped in the Christian tradition as well, hmm. and and so a lot of my acquaintance with that larger tradition you know, comes through reading people like them and, and being led through engagement with them back to the mothers and fathers of the church, the mystics and and so on. So that's one answer to the question. It's Mm -hmm. just, I've, for whatever reason, found myself reading and engaging people who 
are steeped in that tradition. And so I, I'm following their lead. Hmm. I, I think another answer to it is, and probably a more honest answer, a more at least a more kind of gut level answer, is the Pentecostalism that I grew up with didn't work for me. And so I was looking for something that would. I mean, I, I know lots of Pentecostals who've had good experience in their church upbringing and feel nurtured by it, but I didn't. I, I, my experience was mostly negative and was, was anything but nurturing for me. And, and so I think I, I went on a search for, for voices and, and, you know, I, I had to dig wells outside of my own territory, I guess. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And so what strikes me is that you've decided then to, you know, to stay firmly planted in that tradition and, and bring the water from those wells right. into it rather than just move your tent over to where the wells are. Uh, has that been a, I mean, how did you discern or commit to that, that path? Yeah, again, I, I don't know how intentional it was, but for whatever reason, I've always felt like I couldn't shift communities without some authentic, authentic relational reason. Hmm. And the fact is, these people, these Pentecostals, are the people that I was raised with. You know, these are the people I know. I know their language. I know. I mean, it's you know, I been to Pentecostal churches and pastored Pentecostal churches and been to Pentecostal schools and taught in Pentecostal schools. So these, these are my people. And I, I don't know how to leave without it feeling really arbitrary. Sure. So it's, that's one of, you know, that's not a satisfying answer, I'm sure, but I think it's mostly just been a kind of, I don't know. It's not so much loyalty to the ideas of Pentecostalism as it is, commitment to the people that I've lived with. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's something it's striking I, I, to me. It's, you know, it's Eugene Peterson talks a lot about place, mm-hmm. about staying in a place that resonates with me. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure that it was all, I mean, I'm sure there are complications here. I'm sure some of it has to do with you know, the something less than courage or something less than wisdom on my part. But insofar as I understand what I'm doing, it's just I feel I need to stay with the people that I was given to, mm. and until that's not possible anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's striking to me because I think so oftentimes the story we hear when someone has an upbringing like you're talking about, where the 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 tradition or the faith, the resources that were given to you don't work for you, it was a negative experience. You you had something that goes yeah. on that. I think oftentimes people just naturally feel like, well, that means I need to leave, and right. they become sort of something else, um, and yeah. they join a community that does resonate, or they, or they stop being a Christian, or they they kind yeah. of move somewhere else. So, so it, it, it's striking to me that that. Uh, it it sounds to me like it never occurred to you, <laughs> or or you were just like, well, I, I can't do that. Like these are yeah. these are my people. So there was this kind of prior commitment, not to the ideas of the community, but to the people in the community. Right. And there's a way to kind of yeah. sift and sort that f- for you. Uh, that yeah, and I wise. think I think I realized really early on. I mean, as in my early twenties, that there were a lot of people around me who needed me to stay. Hmm. Who had similar experiences to mine and had and needed someone like me to dialogue with 
You know, I like if if Pentecostalism is a big tent, and I think it is, for whatever reason, I've always been at the edge of that tent. Mm. And there are a whole lot of people at the edge of the tent, mm. people who are just outside of it and people who are just inside of it. And, you know, I've I've kind of wanted to stay with those people, you know. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Yeah, so part you you kind of detail in your book Surprised by God how your your awakening to who God is and how that is a an uncovering or discovering of the like you're being disabused of the notions yeah. you have about God. Um and so as I read I was I was considering like I, I, there's this book by a guy named Richard Kearney. I haven't read it. It's called Yeah. He, Anatheism. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, yeah, I am actually. Yeah. Yeah, so Anna the the prefix Anna means returning to. So mm. so the anatheism then is like a returning to God after God. Right. And he's mm. describing like Paul Ricoeur and yes. um, Peter yeah, Rollins. Second naivete, yeah. Yeah. So would you is that how you would describe your journey? Like you grew up with this God, didn't work for you, you had to dig somewhere else outside and you Dis- rediscovered who God is on the other side? Something like that, I think. I I don't know that I would ever put it like Pete Rollins does, just because in my world, they could never recover from that that way of framing the issue, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, right. Uh, you can't talk about uh, theism with these, with the people I, I'm engaged with. But, yeah, I mean, I think I was given a God, growing up, I was given a God who was transactional, who was the source for everything that I needed for my life to be what I wanted it to be. And I found out that that God doesn't exist, that Mm. there is no, there is no such God. And I then didn't know exactly what to do. Right. Because the, I I didn't want, I I still loved God in some way. and, And I don't know how that works exactly, but was beyond that what whoever God was, it wasn't what I had been told. Yes. It didn't work that way. And for whatever reason, instead of like driving me away, that pulled me in. Like it made me interested. It mm-hmm. made me curious for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think I've just never really recovered from that curiosity about, well, then who is God? If God isn't this transactional source, then who is he? Mm-hmm. And so I think, I'm a theologian now because I, I was curious about that question. Mm. And, <laughs> and the more I read, the more I realized there are a lot of, there are a lot of wise people in the tradition who've, who've made it clear God is not transactional, but is nonetheless this good and faithful living presence. <laughs> and that I, I, I love that. I find that re- really beautiful and yeah. delightful. So I, I think Something like what Kearney or Rollins describes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty close to what I'm going through. Although, again, I wouldn't frame it in sure. their terms. Sure, mm. right. So you you name this as like a the god the god who didn't exist but whom you trusted was a transactional god. Yeah. And at some point, you realize that god. Earlier, you said it didn't stop. It didn't work for you. But then you also realize that's not actually the god that exists. That's not the god yeah. Jesus reveals. Yeah. Can you unpack yeah. a bit? What are the artifacts? inside of this God, the transactional God? Because as you dis- as you name that, like I'm nodding a deep yes inside, and we hear from other people that they've, and a lot of people have a crisis of faith at this moment, right, Chris? Where they yeah. they, they 
put all their eggs in the transactional God basket. And when they find out that basket doesn't have a bottom to it and everything right. falls out, they think, well, and then I, I got to go search for something else because God, quote, God doesn't exist. Right. So can you name that God who doesn't exist? Can you unpack a bit what are some of his features? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That's a great question. Uh, I think I think the most important feature is this God is transactional in the sense that he's waiting on you to offer him something. Hmm. So faithfulness, obedience, prayer, fasting, giving, you know, I've heard all kinds of versions of it, but that you, you, you give something to this God and in return you get what you need that you can't get anywhere else, right? The reason you need this God is that you can't make these things happen for yourself. You know, good fortune, um, stuff that lies outside of your control, he can get to. So you give him what you can give him, and then he does for you what you can't do for yourself. Hmm. And it's mostly about building a certain kind of life, right? Looking for, and, and sometimes it comes in like cheap, even grotesque forms where this God is giving you cars and airplanes and, <laughs> right. you know, Gucci shoes. But I think most of the time it comes in much more sentimental forms that, are, are good int- good intention, but are nonetheless false. And that is, you know, God is giving you a meaningful life or a ministry or a family or yeah. children. Or healing. Or healing, exactly. Yeah. And nothing wrong with wanting those things or asking God for those things. Right. But it's, it's usually framed in a way in which if you do your part, he'll do his part. Yeah. And you can, you can depend upon the healing coming or the spouse coming or the, the ministry coming. And I, I just don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's who God is or how God works with us. I don't think that's the way the world works. Right. And but it's another, another aspect of this I think is we're Christians, not because of our experience of God, but because of Jesus experience of God. And I think, come on, Chris, the, we, but people in my world are often taught the opposite, that yeah. you have a relationship with God because your experience has proven that he's trustworthy. Mm-hmm. But my experience hasn't proven that. <laughs> right? I, that's why I have to trust Jesus' experience. Yeah. Because my experience doesn't show that. Yeah. yeah. And if, if, if my experience did, then you would be trusting in me and my experience rather than Jesus mm. and his. So those are some of the, to yeah. me, some of the dimensions of that transactional yeah. theism. Right. It sounds like that that God, the the God of transaction, traffics in sort of this p- uh, pious karma. Yeah. Right? So right. there's there's my deeds or my disciplines are like rubbing the God lamp. Yeah. Yeah. Right? To conjure him. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah, he's a resource. Sorry. He's a resource, mm-hmm. right? Yes. God's a resource. He's just a very powerful one that uh, requires a lot of hoops to jump through. You try to figure out what the rules are. How does this machine work? Yeah. Uh, and if I if I work the machine, like I get the I get the benefit. Yeah. And in your tradition, exactly, yeah. yeah. In your tradition, maybe it's worshiping or calling out on the Lord or speaking in tongues or whatever. In other traditions, yeah. in other traditions, it's getting your doctrine right. You know, being able to eloquently and specifically describe the way in which Christ's death is efficacious for you. And if yeah, you right. if you nail that, then you know you're in the center of whatever God's blessedness. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so I guess in a way, Chris, maybe in every way, like your being disabused of that God was a severe mercy. Right? Yeah. God wants to rob us of incomplete or insufficient notions of Him 
because for a religious person, that may be the biggest obstacle to true faith. Yeah, I yes, absolutely. And so, yeah. then on if, the if you think it works for you, like that's that's that many more years in prison. That could be the worst thing that happens to you, right? <laughs> right, right. right. That, that you you know you're you're dancing. You get the jet. You're, you know, you're whatever. That you're on top of your roof, cutting yourself and dancing, and God does whatever you're asking Him to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you and that and that does happen for people. I mean, for yeah. reasons, for all kinds of complicated reasons. I think the worst case scenario, and the most heartbreaking, is when people it isn't working for them but they don't know how to be honest about that right and so they they kind of brainwash themselves into believing that it's happening when it isn't Mm. and you know it's heartbreaking no matter which form it takes but that for me is the hardest one to watch is the good-hearted well-intentioned people who can't who just can't find a way to be honest with themselves about what's actually going on yeah. yeah, and so then the transactional God be, does become the opiate for the masses, right? Yeah, right. Anytime right. something good happens, I can just sort of say, "Oh, see, there it is. God's giving yeah. me blessings," or that yeah. you know, He's or good. I can't explain this. I don't know how this coincidence happened. Yeah, I mean, I tell my students sometimes that when when we say God, most of us mean whatever it is that makes happen that I what I can't otherwise explain. Yeah, and so this is when you match that up with the idea that. God is transactional, then, you know, your relationship to God mostly is about doing the stuff you need to do so that the stuff in life you can't control gets controlled by someone else. Yeah. And that, I I just don't think that's the way God is or the way the world works. I don't think that that's the way the Christian life is shaped. Yeah. Yes, you put you put that on Twitter um, a few days ago. I, I think I remember, and I, I I saved it, and I I actually wrote up a, a little blog post about it. It was very striking to me that that is oftentimes the way that we use the word God is mm-hmm. just to explain things that can't be explained to kind of give us a little hit almost of yeah. like like oh God's real, like see yes. this this yes. God must be real because this good thing happened to me that I can't explain. I don't know how I got this job or. Yeah. Or, or whatever, hmm. but it, it actually serves to trap us inside of this false view of who God is, Absolutely. and actually traps us yeah. in our own misery. Yeah, and God, I, the thing is, coming to terms with the fact that God isn't real in that sense. Right. He's more real than that, right. but he's not real in that sense. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, so what you're describing is, then, I, I, I've, we've said on this podcast before that there really, are, there really are two main starting points for how we understand Christian theology and spirituality. The first is God is control. And and then control is power. Yeah. And and that power, that controlling power is kind of God's sovereignty and his glory. Yeah. Then there's a second starting point, which is uh, God is love. And his love is his power. Mm-hmm. And that love is sovereignty. And that's part of what you describe in this book, Chris. This yeah. this journey from using God because we're control freaks to be an extension of our will versus surrendering to a God who is love that's full of freedom and that love is sovereign. Can you, mm. de- can you then build out if, if the transactional God is less than Jesus and actually yeah. doesn't deserve our worship, can you paint a picture then for how, how this, this love rather than control is, is a more accurate picture of the God Jesus reveals? Yeah. I mean, I think, so much to say, obviously, but the first is control is, I think, a really bad metaphor for how God relates to us. One of the chapters in the book is God is not in control. And <laughs> part of what I'm 
trying to contend in, the, in that chapter is God's power is not like our power. Like, I think a lot of us, when we say God is omnipotent, what we really mean is God has the most power. That, you know, there are a lot of powerful beings in the world, but God just happens to be the most powerful being. But that's not what we're saying. I mean, what we're saying is God has the only power there is of that kind. <laughs> and his kind of power is radically unlike our power. Our power is always competitive. It's about force and control, exertion, work. But God's power has no rivals. And so God doesn't overcome anything. Right? God doesn't overcome resistance to create. He doesn't overcome resistance to save. There's, there's nothing there for God to overcome that isn't already overcome because of who he is, right? That's why he can speak creation into existence. And I mean, obviously this is deep water, but I think the, the point is we've got to reimagine what God's power is like instead of thinking we know what power is and then assuming God has a lot of that. <laughs> we have to reimagine power itself in light of who God has shown himself to be in Jesus. So power looks like the cross, Power looks like washing the feet of the disciples. You know, power looks like telling the woman caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you, right? I mean, power just is something else from what we've imagined power to be. And Jesus says these things pretty explicitly, you know, to his disciples. You know, this is how the Gentiles lord over others, and it's not going to be that way among you because you're going to care, you're going to care for the least of these, and you're going to make yourself the servant of all. But it's really hard for us to shake the idea that we know what power is and that God just happens to have the most of it. And so I think part of the revolution for us has to be surrendering those ideas of power and saying, you know, God, I, I know that's not the kind of power you have. Right. And mm -hmm. the, but I mean, whenever I talk about these things, you know, it's hard for people to get it because they automatically think if you're saying God is not in control, then you're saying God is out of control yeah, or that things are out of God's control. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for hard for people to grasp that there's something that God could be all powerful, but it power not be at all like what we know yeah. power to be, you know? Yeah. I'm struck by like one of the axioms we uh, train people in, like the, these assumptions in our coaching that, that we've realized, like, this has to be a baseline assumption. It was uh, it was for Jesus. And these have to be baseline assumptions for us to actually grow into learning to lead and live in this power, the power of love. And one mm -hmm. of them, one of them uh, that we learned that we had to name explicitly was that God is like Jesus. Yes. And in him is no unchristlikeness at all. And yeah. so I'm I'm struck by um I'm struck by how like normal that sounds to most people. Well, yeah, God is Jesus, so that makes sense. But how radical it is for the way that most people think. And I, I think Absolutely. the only yeah. way that you can come to the conclusions you're talking about is if you have made this assumption that, okay, maybe I don't know the first thing about who God is until I look at the person of Christ. Yeah. Maybe the writer of Hebrews was correct that, hey, in the past, God came to yeah. us in all these other ways, and it was wonderful, it was gracious, you know, we're thankful for it, but in these last days... He's yeah. come to us in his son, and it just it eclipses, it eclipses everything. And now yeah. we actually get to learn what God's power is like, what his love is like, what, what it all looks like in Christ. But it, it, it strikes me that that's the only way to come to those conclusions. Completely agree. And I think, I think that's why one of the ways to kind of test 
your your vision of God, whether or not it's Christ-like, is is ask yourself if you're comfortable saying things like, God is humble, mm-hmm. or God is there to be my servant. <laughs> yeah. Because these are the things Jesus says about himself, right? I'm meek. Yeah. I'm lowly. I'm I'm the servant of all. I mean, if we can't say those, if we can't say the same things about God we say about Jesus, then we don't understand who God is. Yeah. And if saying something like God is there to serve me is, but again, as we've just been talking about, if that, if you mean something transactional by that, you couldn't be more wrong. Right. But you also have to say something like that to say the gospel, right? That God <laughs> right. would rather not be God at all than be God without us. Right. Like these are the things that I think Jesus reveals to us about how radical God's devotion to us is. Yes. I was just talking in my class today with my theology class of students today about the ways in which God is not humiliated by becoming human. We often talk about the incarnation as if it's a humiliation for God, but Bonifer, I think, has a, has a dead right that the incarnation is not humiliation. Death on the cross is humiliation, hmm. but the incarnation is the revelation of God's glory because it's the revelation of his humility Come on. and his yeah. modesty and his meekness yeah. and his patience, right? <laughs> his gentleness. Yeah. And I, I just read a great book on the power of gentleness that it doesn't go nearly far enough theologically for me, but is it to me is putting his finger right on the, the truth of things. I can't remember her name. Uh, she's a French philosopher. Anyway, it's called the power of gentleness and it's, it's a beautiful and really provocative reminder that that gentleness is right at the heart of things. And I think that's what Jesus reveals. Yeah. So Chris, Maybe to maybe to use that last statement, this is kind of what we've staked our our ministry on and our uh, gravity leadership on is that we it's not that it's not that love and gentleness the fruit of the spirit let's say which is one yeah. th- which is one thing right it's one yes it's one thing that has diff- these all these aspects of it that yeah. it's not that that has been tried and found wanting it's just that we haven't even tried it. Mm-hmm. It's like we have this we have this thing in our heads that if we, we need to get things done, if we want to bear Christ's authority, if we want to fulfill the Great Commission, then we're going to have to roll up our sleeves, you know, cinch up our bootstraps, gird up our loins, which I'm not even sure how to do that, but, you know, I believe nice. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then move out in sort of this, uh, uh, move out in kind of strength and power and fortitude and like, you know, perseverance yeah. and whatever. Um, and so maybe just speaking discreetly about your areas of responsibility. You know, you're a dad, mm. you're a husband, you're a teacher, uh, and you're many other things. But in those areas, like, what difference does this understanding of power make? Can you, could you name some shifts in how you are with people and how you inhabit spaces that are tied to this theological journey? Yeah, I mean, I think that question would be better answered by other people, obviously. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to hear what my wife and my students say in response to that question. But I can I can see what I'm trying to do. I mean, I think I think there's rarely, if ever, a straight line between what we're trying to do and what actually happens with people. And the idea of power that we share in the contemporary world is that I want there to be as direct an impact as possible between my my intentions and efforts and the outcome. So I want to have as much control as I can, right? And it seems to me that part of being godlike is I engage in the work that I do 
as a teacher, as a writer, the work I do for my family, the life I live with my family, I want to assume that I can never guess the relationship between what I'm doing and what God is doing. Hmm. But I'm not teaching my students. I am really trying to participate in their learning, but their learning exceeds my teaching in all kinds of ways, right? So that it's not that my teaching doesn't matter. It's just that there's an excess to that moment that, that is not about me and not about what I'm doing. Hmm. And that's even more true when it comes to living with my wife and my kids, right? That I, I want to be a good father and a good husband, but there's an excess to the way God is at work in their lives. That's beyond my intention. It's beyond my abilities. And so I, I really, really firmly believe in this, this idea that, you know, to be Christian, to inhabit your vocation Christianly is to celebrate the mystery of how God is working in the midst of what's happening. And that that's always beyond all you could ask or think, right? I think Hmm. passages like Ephesians, you know, God, whatever we're praying for isn't good enough because what God is doing is better than that. Mm. Right. And so if I, you know, if I'm praying for my students to learn, God is doing more than I'm asking for. If I'm praying for my, my, my kids, to do well, to, to grow up and be, be wise and good people. God is doing more than that. Mm. So, you know, a lot of it is, and this I get from Rowan Williams, I think, but this idea of just constantly making room for God to work, right? Yeah. So, so much of my responsibility is to just live life in such a way that there's room in what I'm doing for God to be God. Yeah. So it's less, it's less about trying to make things happen, yeah. trying to make good things happen and more about, participating in in God's life and love every yeah. every moment absolutely. I can. Yeah, it's it's yeah, absolutely. it's almost like there's this enchanted surrender. Mm. So there's this this you understand that there's this mystical space being opened up in any moment because God's always present and at work. Yep. It would be folly to presume you have objective perception about exactly how he's working and when he's working and where he's working. So just yep. with this confidence, this surrendered confidence mm-hmm. that every moment is enraptured and enchanted with God's presence. Yeah. And, and you're there You're there by God's grace to participate and be caught up in that in a way that's wholly disproportionate to your contribution. Absolutely. Yeah. Completely agree. That's, that is what I'm saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the kind of God that uh, I'm getting to know. Yeah. That's the kind of God I want to know more. And Chris, uh, your yeah. contribution to this, I mean, this book is 83 pages, give or take. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, so it's a book you could rip through, like on a long bathroom visit. <laughs> but it's not a book. I mean, short plane ride. You know, let's let the listener understand. Uh, but there, but there is a sense in which the quality of of how this book challenges our frames and paradigms. It's an eighty-three page book that, at least for me, it took me weeks to get through because I, I wanted to cogitate and and, and mm. chew on the kind of stuff we're talking about. So, Chris, mm. thanks for being here. Thanks for yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're super encouraged. We're, again, we're going to put. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes. It's going to be added mm-hmm. to our curriculum we do with training leaders. Yeah. And uh, keep writing, brother. Keep pressing on. You keep doing what you're doing. It's been fun. I love meeting people that I can resonate with. And this is, it sounds like you're doing really good work. So thanks for that. Thanks for the chance to, to chat about the book, too. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Chris. Really good to have yeah. you. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Yeah, me too. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. 
If you found it helpful, please let us know by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question, suggest a topic for future episodes. And join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful throughout the week. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.